Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with the Everyday Artist Podcast. I'm going to start with a story today about when I was in fourth grade in a little town of about 700 people. I got sent home from school in the middle of the day, and of course that horrified my mother when she saw me walking into the back door in the middle of the day. And I told her, yes, Mom, I got sent home from school because the principal accused me of running a business from the school. And he said that was illegal. So she asked me what I had done. And I said, well, you know, this weekend I cut out a bunch of little flat shapes, silhouettes of frogs and lizards. And I cut those shapes out of quarter-inch plywood, very thin, workable wood. Then I cut out a stylized electric plug like you would find on the end of your power cord to your computer or your toaster or what have you and then I would drill a hole in the back of the frog then stick in a thin single flexible wire glue it into the back of the frog glue it into the stylized electrical plug that I had cut out of thin wood I would do the same thing with the lizard then I found a flare pin in our junk drawer in our kitchen. I hope everybody has a junk drawer. And I would draw an eye and a mouth on the frog and the lizard. And I took them to school. I had about 10 of each of those. And then I had what I called an electric frog or an electric lizard, a very stylized version of something that was completely ridiculous and ineffectual. And I sold these electric frogs and electric lizards for a quarter apiece. So I was an entrepreneur in fourth grade, but that was squelched by the principal. So now remember, this is a small town. Well, it just so happened that my mother had dated this principal when they were in high school years ago. So she grabbed me by the neck, threw me in the car. We drove to school and she proceeded to rip the principal a new one, if you know what I mean and I was immediately reinstated back into school. So, that was the beginning of my artistic and entrepreneurial career, I suppose. Let's get into the show. Like I mentioned previously, my name is Brent Watkinson. And the name of this podcast is Everyday Artist. What I will endeavor to do in this series is talk to artistic people, uh, some of the, the obvious artistic people, such as painters, sculptors, printmakers, photographers, musicians, but also some of those unsung artists, maybe those that maybe you don't even think about as being artists. Let's talk to bakers, chefs, short order cooks, maybe anesthesiologists, maybe corporate lawyers. Maybe there's an artistic side to all of these things. There are also a lot of people that are artistic at things. Perhaps they don't make their living at it, or perhaps the artistic side of their business is not actually what they're getting paid for. Maybe they're paid for the more nuts and bolts of things. Let's take our corporate lawyer, for example. But you know there's got to be some finesse and some politics and the artistry of dealing with people, uh, cajoling people, convincing people, persuading people. That has to be an artistic endeavor as well. 
What about the corporate lawyer that comes home at night and cooks in a very creative, interesting way to feed their family? We all know that uh, cooking can be a very creative thing. Not everybody likes to cook, but for those of us that do, we use that as a creative outlet. Some people draw, some people sketch, some people paint, some people do photography, some people write, some people dance. Maybe some people used to dance when they were younger, and it's this artistic craving that they have to do. Maybe at a certain age, you go back to the dance studio. Maybe you pick up that guitar. Maybe you open that sketchbook for the first time in a long time. There's a lot of creative people out there that do creative things. Some of them get paid for it. Some of them do it at an extremely high level. Other people just do it for their enjoyment and their pleasure. And hopefully we will talk to all of those people and more. As an educator, parents would ask me, Hey, can my son or daughter make a living making art? And the answer is, well, sure. It's, it's like asking, hey, can my kid make a career and make some money out of playing guitar? Well, Slash did. Uh, Eric Clapton made some money playing guitar. So it, there's all kinds of different levels. What about all those great weekend bands, those garage bands where people play the blues or jazz or they put together a rock band just to have something fun to do and interesting, make a little money on the side, the side hustle, the art of the side hustle is becoming much more important in this economy. From my opening story, you could tell that I was always making things when I was a kid. There are a lot of people that have always made things and they continue to make things. I guess there's a new term these days called makers and there's all kinds of makers marts and that sort of thing where people get together and say, hey, this is what I do. This is what I make. And I think that's really interesting. Again, everybody has their own level that they like to pursue. Some people do it professionally. Other people do it for fun. Other people do it as a hobby. Let me tell you a little bit about what I was like when I was growing up, and maybe there are a lot of people out there that have similar stories. When I was a kid, I was making things out of paper or wood or whatever was around. I remember seeing in our cabinet when I was a, a small child that we had three kinds of cereal in the house. We had the yucky grown-up cereal, and then we had the really yummy, tasty, sugary, terrible-for-you kids cereal. We had two boxes of those. So I poured out a bunch of those cereals in bowls and started crushing some of them and gluing them on paper. And I was basically making an image. I tried to do a little landscape out of the different cereals, the different textures, the different colors, that sort of thing. I'm sure it was terrible. It's, it doesn't exist anywhere anymore, but that's the way my mind worked at the time. And maybe it still works that way. Uh, later, I built rockets. I was obsessed with flying rockets. I was obsessed with NASA and the space race that was going on at the time. I loved um, aircraft. I went to all the Blue Angels shows that I could get to locally. I also built plastic models like model cars, ships, airplanes. If it was in the store, I would find a way to get it and build it. I also loved to read. I loved comics. I loved books. I loved history books. I loved history. 
I know, I was a weird kid. I tried to teach myself how to draw. I tried to teach myself how to do calligraphy. I became interested in music, not only listening to music, but playing music. I played piano for a while, then I started playing the drums. And as a drummer, I was able to participate in three or four different bands. Even when I was starting at 13 and 14 years old, I was playing in honky-tonk bands, country swing bands, a German band that played a lot of polkas. Yes, you heard me, I was in a polka band. It really didn't matter what kind of music it was. I just loved playing and I loved participating. We were doing something live. We were creating things as we went along. Probably my favorite were the country swing bands because we played so many different types of music and it was great to be in front of a crowd. Although I'm more of a behind the scenes guy, but um, maybe I was the drummer hiding in the back of the stage. So that worked out okay. I never took art in high school for no particular reason, I guess. I think I was just more interested in taking some upper-level classes to help me get into college. So when I got to college, I had to make a decision between being a musician and being an artist because I was really intrigued with trying to learn how to draw and paint. So I dropped the music and started taking art classes. And I went to a liberal arts college with an art department, and I ended up taking painting classes, drawing classes, printmaking, which I am not a printer, believe me. I appreciate it immensely, but I am not a printmaker. I ended up having more ceramics and sculpture hours than I did drawing and painting. That never really came to fruition, although I really, really liked doing ceramics. I always tell my students I learned more about drawing by doing ceramics than I did drawing because I'd have this lump of clay on my potter's wheel and I was in total control of the shape and the look and the design and the scale and the proportion of that lump of clay as I molded it into whatever vessel I was trying to do. And I would look at it and say, wow, that's really ugly. What did I do wrong? This needs better proportions. This should be wider here and more narrow. Maybe this needs to be taller. Maybe it needs to be shorter. What do I need to do? So I became interested and oriented toward shape very early. When I graduated college and moved to the big city to make my fortune, I didn't really know enough to make a living as an artist of any kind. I accidentally got a job by pure luck and perseverance as being the assistant photographer for a photo studio. And that worked out pretty well for a while, but I just kept getting further and further away from what I was wanting to do as far as making pictures. So I stumbled again into a couple of really nice people that mentored me and told me the types of things that I needed to do better in order to make a living. So I worked really hard at it with their tutorage, and nine months later, I was a working illustrator. I didn't say I was a good illustrator. I said I was an illustrator that just was barely able to make a living doing what I was doing and constantly trying to get better at my craft and learn the business. And within about a year, I had a rep on the West Coast, and about a year after that, I had a rep on the East Coast. 
And by rep, I mean, we call them reps or representatives. Uh, you can call them an agent if you like. So then I became a nationally working illustrator and got published in things you were supposed to be published in at the time, meaning uh, I was published in the Society of Illustrators in New York City, Society of Illustrators Los Angeles, the Communication Arts Annual, Print Magazine. I had an article written about my digital work in Step-by-Step Digital Design Magazine. I was really interested in the digital side of things, so while I was working on my illustration career, along came the internet, and I was very intrigued by that. Uh, I embraced it fully, so while I was illustrating, I was also trying to do some paintings for galleries because a lot of clients said, wow, this illustration looks like a painting. So I started doing some paintings for galleries, didn't have a lot of success with that at the time, but I learned a lot of about that business and I learned a little bit more about both worlds. So I sat in my uh, studio with an HTML book in my lap, building my first of many websites, and I started building websites for other artists. And lo and behold, it wasn't long until people realized, wow, instead of having physical portfolios that cost a fortune strung out all over the United States and the world, you could put your portfolio online. And then the designers jumped on that idea. Uh, Instead of sending your artwork all across the country with Federal Express, now you could scan it. You could email it. You didn't have to talk to anybody on the phone very often anymore. So the business was changing, and it was changing quickly. Some people say it was changing for the better. Other people say it was kind of an even across-the-board kind of change. Um, The rules were changing also, and some of the prices went down. Instead of saving time by scanning and emailing your work, that just meant there was more time for illustrators and photographers to make changes, changes that were dictated by the art director or the client, what have you. But instead of saving time, it actually robbed time and the business started, again, changing quite rapidly. But I had lots of things on my mind. I was trying to do illustration. I was trying to do digital work. I was trying to do painting for galleries. And at the same time, I had leisure time that I could build model aircraft and fly them. I loved flying radio-controlled aircraft, and I got involved in a couple of local clubs, and that was really interesting, and it was, again, it was making something. I did this back in the day when you actually had to build your plane. It came in a box in the form of a bunch of thin balsa wood and sticks, and you had to read the plans, and you had to build the wing, you had to build the fuselage, you had to get the radio, you had to install the radio and all the linkages that actually made the plane fly. So it was very involved, but it was a, um, it was a labor of love. As I mentioned before, I was always trying to do a lot of things at the same time. I had 
many, many interests. I was a very curious person. I needed knowledge, and I was constantly trying to educate myself on so many different things. While I was doing all of those things, I was also making some sample paintings that I could send to NASA. As I mentioned earlier, I was obsessed with the space race and NASA and things that flew. So I started painting images that I thought NASA may be interested in, just trying to show, look, I have this passion and I have this ability. So I was gingerly, tentatively sending images to NASA for a while. And about five years later, I was in my studio when the phone rang. And it was the late Robert Schulman, who was the director of the NASA Fine Arts Program, which I don't even know if that exists any longer. And Mr. Schulman said that he had been watching my career and he was enjoying the images that I had sent him on a rare occasion. And he knew my client list and what I was doing. And he said that now is your time. And he invited me to come to NASA to live for about a week and get the VIP treatment along with uh, probably about seven or eight other people that were involved in the fine arts program at the time. And we saw the maiden launch of the space shuttle Endeavour. Endeavour was built to replace the Challenger that had exploded on liftoff in 1986. So that was obviously uh, one of the most exciting things that I've ever been able to participate in and got to talk to a lot of people that had been at the NASA program since the very beginning. So that was a huge high point in my career for me. I did a painting that was 30 by 40 inches. I was called a mission-specific artist, which meant I was supposed to produce something that happened on that particular mission that they did not have actual video or photography references for. In other words, I had to take all the information they sent me in the form of text and video and photography and interpret that into another view or another point of view of what that mission encapsulated. So that was a, a huge, interesting project for me to do. And two years later, I did another painting for them, slightly larger, 36 inches by 48 inches. And those paintings became the property of NASA and the Smithsonian Institution. And they subsequently ended up going on a tour around the world and around the country, and they have been displayed in many, many places. I have no idea what happened to them, but I am pretty confident they're in a box somewhere in a warehouse and may never be seen again. But at least I can say I got that opportunity and had a great time with it. I continued to do illustration for many years. I was working for galleries at the same time, doing paintings, uh, having shows. I had a few one-person shows, but I was in a lot more group shows, which I was way more comfortable with anyway. Uh, that was really interesting. Again, learning about those businesses was a steep hill to climb and try to figure out what galleries were trying to do and what they could do for you and what they could not do for you. I was still programming. I was learning the languages of the web, which I was very intrigued with. And eventually, uh, when the iPhones came along, 
a friend of mine said, hey, you should do iPhone apps. And I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. Unfortunately, it took me about six or eight months of a lot of research to find out what language Apple was using for its programming. After I figured out what that was, it took me about a year and a half to learn that language. I had to start at a lower level, learn a certain language, then learn the next one, then learn the next one, and finally I got to what is called Objective-C, which is what the iPhone apps were using at the time, which later became Swift. And when I became competent in that language, then I had to jump through the hoops and apply to become an Apple iPhone and iPad developer, which I did and enjoyed doing that for about five years. I did apps mainly for myself, and I really had a lot of fun doing that. It was a very, very steep hill to climb. I didn't know anybody else doing it at the time, so I had to rely on the forums on the internet about programming, and people were having you know, a, a similar problem that I was, and I would research it, and I would figure it out and move forward. At one time, I think I had eight universal apps in the App Store, and my biggest seller was what I called Color Teacher. And I basically took the color class that I had taught for many years in many different educational institutions, some which were national, some which were private, and I put that into an app. And every quarter I would get updates from Apple about which apps sold where and that sort of thing. Turns out that uh, I guess the Chinese people loved my color teacher app because I just sold that in China way more than anywhere else. It was always interesting to, uh, they would break it down into continents and countries. So it was a lot of fun to get those reports and look and see who was buying my apps all around the world. Uh, at some point, Apple changed their philosophy a little bit about their code and I became disenchanted and decided that's not really something that I could do anymore. I really miss doing that, but it was a lot of fun at the time. And that actually led to me doing an actual programming job for a national company that worked on car dealership websites. And I was actually called a website operations specialist technician. And if that's too long for you, I was a web op spec tech. That was kind of fun. People would say, what do you do? I'm a web op spec tech. How about you? The programming gig was very enjoyable, very interesting. Uh, it was like solving a huge puzzle or multiple puzzles every day. Every day I would go into work and I never knew exactly what type of thing I was going to be asked to do. And it was a lot of fun. And I worked with some really extraordinarily brilliant people. I'm still painting for galleries now, and I had the idea for this podcast. So I can't wait to share these wonderful stories of these artistic people that do artistic things every day, and perhaps a few people along the way that you may not have thought or perceived as artistic, and we'll find out what those are as we go along. Thanks for listening. Again, my name is Brent Watkinson, and this is the Everyday Artist Podcast.